You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show, a Grammy Award-winning, legendary, affable, elder statesman of folk music who was there in the crucible beginnings of bluegrass and has joyfully jaunted across a plethora of ethnic music styles in his five-plus decades writing songs and singing across the world, Peter Rowan. Sometimes with these interviews, I just don't know where to begin. And sitting down with Mr. Rowan outside the Strawberry Music Fest in Northern California recently, it was one of those out-of-body experiences. How many times have I heard his high, silky voice floating above David Grisman and Jerry Garcia on those quirky and transcendent Old in the Way records? And you know what makes me really nervous? Trying to synthesize an entire half a century long career, opening for the doors at the Fillmore, swapping song ideas with Bob Dylan on his porch, riding the bus with Bill Monroe as one of his original bluegrass boys, and watching the old man pick song ideas out of a shoebox above his head. His love affair with Buddhism and reggae and Hawaiian music and Czech folk songs, duetting with Gillian Welch and Del McCurry, and his long-winding side project, The Free Mexican Air Force, with Flaco Jimenez and Los Tex Maniacs playing the lovely, lilting accordion dripping songs from south of the border. How can you synthesize that into an hour-long interview in a cramped Best Western when they're trying to kick us out? Well, we did our best. And there's always a hint of sadness when I have to end these things. Because sometimes... When you stop rolling and you're just standing out there in the sunshine, that's when you really open up about things. And I want to tell that Bob Dylan story here real quick because I just love that image. They were both sitting there on the deck in their sunglasses and it was nighttime and they never took off the sunglasses. They just looked out at the ocean, contemplating the hugeness of the universe, swapping songs. Oh, to be a fly on that wall. My dad is an original deadhead, so much so that my sister had to steal his best of CDs out of his car so he wouldn't launch into St. Stephen or Ramblin' Rose for the thousandth time on the way to school. But my introduction to bluegrass, you know, it came through that. It came backwards, from rock and roll to blues and back around to 60s protest singers and gospel and then into bluegrass. If there was one person who was connecting all of those threads together, it was the curly-haired crooner from Massachusetts, Peter Rowan. These days, despite it getting harder and harder for this elder statesman to get around at all, he's still on the road constantly, and you'll see him soon at the Telluride Bluegrass Fest and Red Wing Roots and Rocky Grass and wherever young folks and old folks are still coming together around whatever stew folk music is cooking these days. Make sure you stick around to the end of this episode where uh, we actually get to hear Rowan and his Free Mexican Air Force Band try to capture this old-school spirit under the big trees in Grass Valley, California. And if you go to our Instagram uh, show in the road podcast, there's some really cool video of them playing in the parking lot at the Best Western and everyone kind of watching them and going, wow, this is really fun. And it was. But enough for me. Here he is now, Peter Rowan. Do you consider yourself a, a songwriter first or a guitar, guitarist, singer, songwriter? Or? Well, I spend more time working on the guitar now than anything. The writing seems to come of uh, immersion into a musical um, kind of like a flow, I guess you could right. say. And the instrument is the, the sitting down at the instrument kind of makes the, you know, you're, you're invoking music at that point right there. 
and I think the songs come from that. And I have, you know, I wrote, I jot down phrases that I might keep on pieces of paper in my pocket, like Bill Monroe used to keep a shoebox mm-hmm. up above his seat on the bus, oh, yeah, filled with just phrases, titles of yeah. songs he's never written. Oh, I'd love to see what those phrases were. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, for for folks who are not familiar with how, you know, bluegrass really started as a very recent art form, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like one of these phenomenons that you were there at the beginning of it in a lot well, of ways. Well, the yeah. actual beginning, I guess you'd have to say began, I mean, uh, the official beginning was 1948, when Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs joined Bill Monroe, and he right. finally had people of the age and the ability and the drive to not only fulfill his vision, right. but their influence was felt on his music forever after. Right. But you know, before that, he had accordions, he had string beans playing banjo. Yeah. You know, had Howdy Forrester in the band, mm-hmm. um, Clyde Moody, um, a number of people were playing with Bill right from the 1930s, including mm. his brother Charlie. Mm. And I, you know, you could say Bluegrass began with the Monroe brothers, really. Yeah. Bill and Charlie Monroe, because you had the the rhythm guitar style that became the Bluegrass style, and you had the mandolin, of course, Bill's fiery mandolin. So Bill Keith, the banjo player, introduced you? Is that the yeah, story? Yeah, I, I was, you know, we were all from uh, New England area, and we had our own world of... Uh, folk music that was like Eric Von Schmidt and Tom Rush and mm-hmm. uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Dylan came through, Joan Baez, of course. And mm-hmm. I had a little rock and roll band called the Cupids that was like a, funny enough... Rockabilly type that, group? You know, but they called it Tex-Mex Rockabilly because mm-hmm. we based ourselves on uh, mm. Richie Valens, mm. Richie Valenzuela, O'Donna, uh, Come On, Let's Go, and Buddy Holly, of course. Mm-hmm. And so... It's strange that all those years ago, now I'm playing with a complete, full-on Tex-Mex band as the Free Mexican Air Force. It's kind of full circle. It, it? it is. It's really great. And um, even some of those Buddy Holly ideas and Richie Valen ideas mm-hmm. come in. And these guys know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They studied with uh, Flaco Jimenez. Mm-hmm. You know, he was their guru. Mm-hmm. They played with him. They're his band. You played with him a few times. And yeah. We, we did, in 1978, we did the Free Mexican Air Force. Yeah. Um, and so when these guys in this band, Los Tex Maniacs, were playing with Flaco, they'd studied his music like I had studied Bill Monroe's music and then Flaco's music. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, like Josh Baca and Max Baca, they were playing with Flaco. Josh is only 27, mm. and he's been playing since he was five years old. Yeah. And when he learned Flaco's music, he also learned my music because it was part of Flaco's history. Right. So that, you know, that's amazing enough. Yeah. Well, you're, you're an interesting case in that, you know, I think a lot of times when people look at bluegrass and folk music, it's very, to be real, white and very sort of going in one direction. And you have sort of blossomed in many directions throughout the years, and it's all made sense somehow. You know, you've, you've done reggae stuff, you've yeah. done, uh, you know, stuff with Czech folk singers, and, yeah. um, and then this sort of eternal love that you have for Latin music, bringing yeah. it to folk music, you know. I don't know if it's just where I grew up or whether it was my mother singing Begin the Begin when I was <laughs> a kid. 
you know, it, but all these things influence you. And uh, also it's the locations. You know, for years I went to Hawaii and never, sometimes I wouldn't even have a guitar. I'd just be like taking my family at the time over there for a break. And then I started touring over there with the David Nelson band. And, mm -hmm. and I kept thinking, we're there to do what we do, right? The show that we do. Right. But there's all this Hawaiian music floating around. You know, and uh, through an actual bluegrass banjo player named Paul Sato, a Japanese Hawaiian, uh, uh, he introduced me to the sort of heart of some very traditional approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, the ukulele player that I played with, uh, Doug Tolentino, is from a, a long history of, of, of musicians, as most families are over mm -hmm. there. And uh, he's also a genealogist, so... At our first meeting, we just talked about like the amazing history of uh, family traditions and how uh, in Hawaii he's he's going around he's trying to find out who really owns the, who how did the people get to the land yeah Polynesian because, settlers yeah. well it's not only that it, that goes back into prehistory but yeah you know ever since Hawaii was colonized by the U S in the 1900s uh, and and before that the royalty gave the land to the people. And so you have yeah. children of children of children of grandchildren of mm. living on pieces of property that were, where did they come from, you know? So that's his thing. And, and in music, it's the same way. He, he studied under some great masters of Hawaiian music. And mm. uh, so... And you put out a record, My, my Aloha. Yeah. I was dancing with my wife last night in the living room to that. <laughs> It's well, very dreamy. It's a very dreamy. Record. I know it's dreamy, and and you know it's uh, in some senses it may not translate into the U.S. I don't call it market, maybe, mm -hmm. but uh, when you need to hear something like that and you put that record on, mm -hmm. it, it's got what you need. It's hard to not have a smile on your face <laughs> yeah. when that. Yeah. It's like waves of, yeah. of music, but uh, you know, getting back to Bill Keith. You know, see, I the the folk scene in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was centered around a place called the Club Forty Seven mm. in Harvard Square, or as my friend Joe Val called it, Habit Square. Habit Square. Yeah, but across the river, across the Mystic River or the Charles River, as they become there, uh, there was another place called the Hillbilly Ranch, mm. and that place played to sailors and. Uh, World War II folks coming back in the, mm. in the uh, still coming back from stationed overseas, mostly sailors mm. from the uh, disembarking at the Boston Naval Yard. Mm. And it was, it, it had its own mystique. It, and it, I kind of liked it as well, if not better, than the, the intellectual Harvard Square side of things of the intense listening and, you know, mm. appreciation. There was a lot of appreciation. It, at the Hillbilly Ranch, the appreciation was just people getting crazy. <laughs> yeah, a little more fun involved. Well, yeah, but not a, of, of a world of you and I. Mm. A totally different world, you know. Mm. People who had been in the service, and girls, lots of girls. And uh, so I started playing there. I was underage, but, you know, they just sort of wink there they, they didn't care you know yeah in those days and that was right near uh, the greyhound bus station so you had a lot of people coming and going into town and uh, the a band called the lily brothers from west virginia mm -hmm. uh, the confederate mountaineers mm. uh the lily brothers and a banjo player who had been with bill monroe named don stover mm -hmm. 
were playing there, and their fi the fiddle player who had brought them there was Tex Logan from Big Springs, Texas, who had, as a high school student, was uh, given a scholarship to MIT. Hmm. And when he got to Boston, he was far away from West Texas dance halls. Mm -hmm. And he called out to some bluegrass people and, and to say, you ought to come to town here. There's a big audience. And there was, right, just after World War II. Mm -hmm. For the next 15, 20 years, there was all kinds of uh, folks coming back from Europe. And the uh, the sailors were the most... They danced in a corral. Mm -hmm. There was a corral and there was a stage. And then there was the bar room and... Uh, mm. Uh, just characters, you know, and as a young kid in Boston, that was, it was like, I never thought of it as my roots, but it was like just as much as going to, over to Harvard Square and hearing Joan Baez sing mm -hmm. pristine English ballads, mm -hmm. you know. But it was the pristine English ballads that also sparked the literary side, you mm -hmm. know, because I'd been going to school and learning how to diagram sentences and diagram poetry and mm. the, the, learn the tech technology for poetic expression, mm -hmm. you know, strophes, anti-strophes, <laughs> you know, iambic pentameter. And so it it all kind of came together in a way that I could see that the old English ballads and the, uh, the old narratives, you know, mythological, almost mystical stuff from the Celtic tradition had mm -hmm. found a home in bluegrass long ago. Mm -hmm. And bluegrass is a mixture of like sentimental Victorian ballads, you know, mystical, old, you know, deep-rooted folk songs, mm -hmm. and the blues, mm -hmm. you know. And I was just kind of messing around, and Bill Keith had already been with Bill Monroe, and I was playing mandolin with Bill Keith. And uh, I got a call one day from, from Bill... Uh, and he said that uh, Bill Monroe was going to come up to New England to solo mm. and play some college dates and do uh, Doc Watson's birthday mm. at, I think, uh, Symphony Hall or Jordan Hall in Boston. This is like 65? 62. Oh, earlier. Yeah. Okay. And um, so he, Bill came up and I was hired as a guitar player. Mm. And I've just heard a CD from Barry Vermont in 1964. No, it was 64, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. When he came, it was 64. And uh, it's our second date with Bill Monroe. Mm. And Bill Keith is, of course, a veteran. And Monroe is entering into a new phase of his career, which is to be the actual father of bluegrass. Mm -hmm. Not the country star who had the hits mm -hmm. and what are we going to do with this guy now right because it was electric country at the time mm -hmm. honky tonk country and uh, you know Elvis had changed everything mm -hmm. Elvis had uh, electrified the world and here's Bill Monroe who Elvis was you know, inspired by mm -hmm. and uh, he's got these kids in their 20s around him mm -hmm. and in, I listened to that tape and we were on fire mm -hmm. we wanted to please that guy so much mm -hmm. and he knew how to direct music with music. Mm. And that's been my whole approach, is, is to... What do you mean by that? Well, instead of telling you what to do, mm -hmm. he'd only tell... If, only if he really didn't like what you were doing and thought you had strayed from the path towards what he wanted, yeah. would he ever say, don't do that. Mm. And he might not say it that way. He might just say, uh, that don't go... <laughs> that don't go... <laughs> Uh, but for the most part, it was uh, learned by example uh, mm. of uh, 
you know, he had refined his uh, mandolin playing to such a degree that when he stroked it on what we call the chop now, mm -hmm. you know, big, big backbeat, you know, uh, much like Bob Marley, Sam Bush is a great expert at this whole mm -hmm. Kentucky chop. Mm -hmm. uh, he could direct the band from 15 feet away. We'd be all there, you know, and and blue, you play hard when you hear yeah. that kind of music. You play hard, and there's no amplification, so immediately you have to create a tone, mm -hmm. and and uh, and some some dynamics. And his he never let up in his music. He always kept it driving forward. And the tone of that instrument, that 1923 F5 Gibson mandolin. Mm -hmm. The, the neck had gone kind of funny, and the strings were very high. Mm -hmm. And Bill had developed a style around that time that was just, it's kind of like Chuck Berry. It was mm. just like a lot of downstrokes and a lot of blues. Mm. And um, for a while, I thought, well, it's just because the action's so high, you can't really do the other stuff. But then in the middle of the set, he'd go into the tremolo, and he'd do all this stuff mm -hmm. and in the pines. And then he'd go back to this kind of like, you know, jagged kind of really bluesy thing and actually it was just what he was hearing musically at the time do you remember the song you played for the audition for bill monroe i well uh there was no audition oh it was just you were hired we were hired by bill keith you know yeah who'd been a bluegrass boy uh the first song well i had learned all his songs that's mm -hmm. the other thing you'd learn all the songs off the records and imitate as best you can yeah but and he would yell at me he'd say sing it like peter owned yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, but, but the actual tune that I reawakened in Bill's repertoire was a, a very deep kind of waltz, a bluesy waltz called uh, "The Old Kentucky Shore," mm. uh, uh, which is it's a it's just got all the all the blues in it, and uh, it's real slow. You know, in in the in the blues tradition, primarily in in a, from people like Muddy Waters, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, a slow blues is, you know, it's like 6-8, and b kind of, you know. Yeah, and so, but, so in bluegrass, that's translated to, you know, How's that song go that you were talking about? Oh, up along the Ohio River over on the old Kentucky shore once dwelt a fair young maiden. Now there's a creep upon her door. Yeah. So it's all in there, you know, and that's been one of my great joys of my whole career is is finding the interlocking rhythms between our cultures. You know? mm. I'd say most of the time it happens to me as a songwriter because of being in an area that has a strong environmental uh, uh, flavor, mm. you know, whether it be South Texas on the border or with Jamaica, you mm. know, where the trees are singing. Mm. You know, I mean, Jamaica's a very mystical place, and not only that, everybody believes in the mythology of it, you know. Mm. I remember I was camped out there one night uh, during Bob Bar Marley's birthday. They had built, uh, we were filming it, and they had built a cabin mm. 
up in Nine Mile, and all the local kids, you know, to earn their 25 cents would go out and get these giant branches from the local fields, mm. then bring them to all these honkies from America. Yeah. That we were making a film, to, and, and I was singing with the local kids, and of course, you know, in Jamaica you get there, and then all of a sudden nobody wants filming. Uh-huh. So we had to make a film up with the local people. Mm-hmm. And so I got to go to all these places that Bob Marley had habitated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I went up on the, what they call Mount Zion, which mm-hmm. is the hill behind uh, Nine Mile. I also sat in a, a, um, a cistern that was fed by a mountain stream. Yeah, Peter Mann, you stay here, <laughs> relax, man. This is where Bob Mann, he would relax and cool out, man, in the cool yeah. of the day, you know. And uh, so I got to hang out with all the locals. And, you know, the only stringed instrument at night when they had the Niabingis, which was, you know, 20 people chanting and dancing and playing drums, the only string instrument was a banjo. Hmm. And that was in the Jamaican culture, a six-string banjo. Well, it's kind of like Jamaica is such a intersection between, you know, the African oh, cultures totally. and, and then totally. the British and the American cultures sort of overlapping so much. Yeah, even the drums they play look like old British marching band drums with yeah. the ropes along the sides yeah. and stuff. Uh, it was fantastic. And, uh, you never met Bob Marley, did you? Well, it's a whole other story about Bob Marley, but he used to play San Francisco at a place called The Boarding House, mm-hmm. which is where the Old and in the Way, old and in the way record was made, or records now. Yeah, uh, We did, I guess, seven nights there mm. at The Boarding House with me, uh, Dave Grisman, Jerry Garcia, Vassar Clements, and uh, John Kahn. And that was... You know, when Olden in the Way was just discovering itself. Mm. So it was very exciting. So after that, Bob Marley came there. He did the same thing. He played for a week. Mm. And so we'd go. We'd go. Mm. And uh, at the time, my brother was growing some amazing stuff. And uh, what I saw was Lauren standing at Bob's dressing room door. And, and uh, he, Lauren told me what he said. He said, we like that tune, Small Axe. And Bob, and he's holding this thing to give to Bob. Yeah. And uh, Bob goes, small axe. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And then I was sitting nearby, and I see this arm come out the dressing room door, very long arm, yeah. take the take the spliff from Lauren, yeah. and then clouds of smoke. And I spent my birthday of that year lying on the stage, uh, lying on the drum riser uh-huh. with a curtain just behind Carlton Barrett, Barrett uh-huh. on the drums. So I think I got erregified then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't dance, but I was, I mean, I was totally comatose from, yeah. from all the smoke. And um, So you know, that's as close as I came to meeting Bob Marley, but, um, you know, we, we thought he was uh, something really wonderful. And well, again, you know... The thing that I feel like Bob doesn't get appreciated for is just, like, the song craft that he... Yeah. I mean, the songs are so tight and so... It, catchy you know well, they, and they're they and they're played, like eternal those they songs. played for hours those guys yeah. you know they had their own studio and i've recorded in the the new tough gong well, there's two tough gongs there's the old tough gong on hope road and then there's the new tough gong studio down in central kingston mm. uh, well i wouldn't call it even central kingston 
It's a you know it's a seaco it's a pirate island, mm. and this studio is just out there amongst some industrial mm -hmm. and living areas. You mm -hmm. know over there there's no code. Yeah. You know there's not like you can't live here. Mm -hmm. People live there, <laughs> wherever you know. And the studio is right there, um, and it's the old uh, equipment that Bob used. And mm. I met Errol Brown who was his producer, mm. and he did me a rough mix of one of my songs. He didn't do anything but just make the music happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was Bob and other guys in the band who said, let's add the echo, let's, you know, because they were looking for commercial success. They wanted to have a sound that would enter the commercial market. Yeah. And, of course, Chris, uh, the guy who, Island Records at the time, mm -hmm. uh, Chris, I uh, can't remember his name, had a lot to do with Bob's success. But I will also say about Bob's songwriting, from what I can tell and what I've read and what I've heard is he had several people he wrote with, mm -hmm. uh, several people who had like a philosophical vi vision mm. and it was like Bob was in a way raw material mm -hmm. as as a member of Bill Monroe's band might be raw material that Bill is going to school in, into mm -hmm. something so here's Bob schooling these local poets towards his vision of reggae mm -hmm. and at the same time these guys are adding ideas into the, you know whether Bob came up with all those hook phrases like coming in from the cold mm. Uh, or uh, would you be loved? Yeah, but no, I, I think that is his. Yeah, I think the more philosophical ones are the collaborations. Mm. You know, uh, kick them crazy bald heads out of the yard. Mm. You know, but they fed Bob, and Bob fed them. You know, uh, music is a collaborative art. You know? I feel like you know, your record Dharma Blues 2014. You know, which is very mystical and no, very, thank you. you know, kind of. Uh, introspective in, in your own sort of mm -hmm. discovery of Buddhism mm -hmm. and, and different, uh, you know, religious philosophies. Mm. I feel like you had a lot of people on that record, Gillian Welch and, and folks who really lifted those songs up. Yeah, man. What that, yeah. What if, what if Bob was on that record? What's, Marley? What song would he would, uh, fit on that record, you think? Oh, I think we would do a reggae version of Illusions Fool. Okay. <laughs> How's yeah. that song go? I have been illusions fool, I have been illusions fool, I have wandered through this world alone, yeah. a voice crying in the wilderness, seeking perfect harmony in the wilderness, in the wilderness. Which I have to say where I got the idea of illusions fool was from John McLaughlin, the mm. jazz guitarist, mm. guru, mm. Had, was called Sri Shimoy. Mm. He was a very advanced yogi. And Sri Shimoy put out a record that I found in, in a bin at a health food store in 66. Mm. And his song was, I am an idiot. <laughs> I am an idiot. <laughs> so illusions fool. Mm. I kind of said, well, God, if you can say that, then illusions fool is is a good a good a good way to go. You know, you've played with so many, obviously legends throughout your years. Is there someone that you wish you could have done a collaboration with that you never got to? I'd love to get Eric Clapton on my new bluegrass record. Come on, Eric. <laughs> So I, can't uh, be busy right now. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, Jamie Oldacre 
was playing percussion on my last uh, Rebel recording, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, he was Eric Clapton's drummer mm. on the, when the, when they recorded in Florida mm -hmm. uh, at that Ocean Studio there. That was Tom Dowd's. It was Eric's first solo effort after mm -hmm. Cream, mm. and Jamie was the drummer. So he recorded "I Shot the Sheriff," "Cocaine," mm -hmm. uh, "You Look Beautiful Tonight." Mm -hmm. um, all that material from, from that period was Jamie on the drums. So to have him in a bluegrass band, mm. he brings as much roots as on his instrument as the other people in the band. That's why I hired him, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, up until a few years ago, having drums in a bluegrass band would have been heresy. Well, no, it, it, that's a folkloric thing. It, all those guys recorded with drums back in the day. Oh, really? All of them. Stanley mm. Brothers. In mm. fact, James Brown played snare drum on one of the Stanley Brothers tunes. What? Oh, yeah. Now, here, this is a whole world. <laughs> you know, Stardate Records was started by a guy named Sid Nathan up in Cincinnati. Uh -huh. And James Brown couldn't find a label to save him so his mm -hmm. You know, so... There were two bands he hired, that Sid hired in the R&B, the, the yet-to-be-expanded mm -hmm. R&B field beyond the black audience, mm -hmm. or the Chitlin Circuit. Mm -hmm. And that band was Hank Ballard and the Midnighters mm -hmm. and James Brown. Mm -hmm. And Hank Ballard uh, and the Midnighters played, uh, did the, uh, when the Stanley Brothers recorded a Finger Pop in Time, it's Hank Ballard and the Midnighters doing mm. the finger popping. Mm. They're in the studio doing that. Um, and then uh, James, you know, was a drummer, and uh, he was recording uh, for Star Day. So it was the Stanley Brothers, uh, James Brown, and uh, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. And this is all, this is the legendary stuff. And one day, uh, they, they, the guy who was supposed to play snare on the Stanley Brothers tune, they were looking for commercial success. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sid Nathan especially, being mm -hmm. the head of the label, and so he had James come in and play snare on a cut. But it wasn't like, yeah. and now James Brown on yeah, drum. Yeah. It was just like him fitting in. Yeah. You know, music is music. Yeah. You know, it feeds, every all parts of music feed each other. Yeah, like that, you know. And uh, so it, it, a snare drum in bluegrass music has been, I would say, more or less successful mm. in its use because sometimes the, the purpose isn't musical. Mm. It's a... Mm, I mean, for the musicians, it's always musical. Like Jimmy Martin used a snare drum a lot, mm -hmm. and uh, and to to good effect too. But you can hear it when it's trying to go into a different genre. It's trying to be something that it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think I I think our use of the percussion is we're using it to play bluegrass, mm -hmm. you know, and it's a, a, the inching forward or as as the reggae players say. Forward the music, man. <laughs> <laughs> Olden in the way didn't have, didn't have. No, uh, no. Any. No, I would say pure, pure bluegrass is the love of and ability to play string band music based on the the qualities of acousticness that give it a, a very special feel. But not many can really do that. Probably the people who do it best are the rural bands of this day, even out of North Carolina, Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, these young kids coming up playing bluegrass, mm -hmm. they're, they're not thinking drums. Mm -hmm. Some of them are. Some of them want to be a jam band. Right. But but some of these people who, who are recent uh, winners of the IBMA, it's very pure. 
And well, I, th- you, I think that's the the, the, the sort of yeah. value uh, in a way mm. in a, in a kind of like a, the aura of bluegrass is a pure acoustic. So it lets the vocals mm-hmm. shine, mm-hmm. and when it's done right and recorded well, there is a a sound that can't be duplicated in mm-hmm. any other way. And the drums can fit in there, but they have to have as much roots in their style mm-hmm. as the the other players. You know, like with, with Jamie. You know, I'll show him what my fingers are doing. I said, mm-hmm. uh, the bluegrass sounds like I'm going dung chang, but what I'm really doing is this. And I want to emphasize this. It's dung dung. You know, some, like a rhythmic syncopation. Mm-hmm. And so he will find a way on his drums coming from Tulsa, which is a crossroads, American Indian blues mm-hmm. country. He'll find the genuine roots of that... Uh, mm-hmm percussive uh, support, uh, and which is different than playing drums on a, a song. Well, in, in many ways, you know, for a lot of young people like me, Olden and the Way and the Grateful Dead sort of intersecting is how we were introduced to bluegrass right. and going back from the rock and roll stuff and then going acoustic. Uh, and you, in, in many ways, are, are sort of unlike a lot of folks where you started playing electric guitar and then went acoustic, right? Almost in reverse, and I'm curious about the, the way you feel like you've been able to get acoustic music to audiences throughout your life and how that, you know, what that's meant to you. Well, it's just by playing it. Yeah. I mean, and I mean putting up with horrible sound at times. Yeah. Like, they, you know, during the 70s rock and roll era, most of the sound people were oriented towards a certain way of EQing sound, right? Electronically limiting through machines, like playing live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could never get a good sound. And and the idea of plugging in an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. was antithetical to right. the idea of an acoustic guitar. Nowadays, it's like, well, you know, kind of whatever works, really. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're playing live, yeah, you might have a tuner on your guitar, too, just to make sure. Yeah. Because you can't hear anything. Yeah. But to play pure bluegrass, you remember bluegrass's first audiences were churches and schoolhouses, mm-hmm. an audience of no more than 50 people. Mm-hmm. So the intimacy of the string band music was mm-hmm. something else. Now, we can carry that forward, and that's what I've always tried to do. But when to advance the music, I think they're, well, it's kind of redundant to say, but I think in the acoustic world there's a way to have a, a certain there's several drummers who are like not just playing drums mm-hmm. but they're playing the music that you're playing mm-hmm. you know but uh no i would as far as me being the banner for acoustic music just through wor- terrible sound and working long through tours <laughs> and just carrying that guitar you know and then finally people begin to go oh yeah he plays just that stuff mm-hmm. you know uh, I find some of the smaller guitars are easier to mic, mm. like a triple O size Martin. Mm. I have several copies made by different luthiers. Mm. Um, it's a thinner body. It's, I call it a songwriting guitar. It's got an old slot head and a wider fingerboard. Mm-hmm. And those guitars uh, are easy, more easily picked up. They don't need a lot of tweaking, as we say, on, mm-hmm. the, on the sound of the instrument itself. There's not a lot of big bass roar or anything mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's like, Oh, guitar. Yeah. But no, it's been a passion and a fixation of mine to 
find that acoustic sound. But also, you know, you weren't afraid to experiment with some stuff, you know, doing the David Grisman project, Earth Opera, you know, and you guys are opening for the Earth doors. Earth Opera. You know, it's like there's stuff that is was pretty out there, you a know. A Diarmin yeah. pickup on a D28. Yeah, that was about as far as electric <laughs> as we went. No, I ended up playing a, 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 a guild, a little a beautiful old guild that was made when the factory was... The employees were a certain group of people who moved on. I think they moved to maybe Epiphone or something. Mm-hmm. But they made some very nice sort of acoustic electric guitars at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, even with the Tex-Mex sound, uh, mm-hmm. although I played Stratocaster last night just for the sheer joy of having <laughs> sustain, uh, and that, that the way the handmade pickups kind of burst through so I don't mm-hmm. get in the way of anyone. I also The guitar I have here is... a one that was just given to me by the Eastman Company. Mm-hmm. It's a copy of a 1930s uh, Gibson ES-125. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, you know, an F-hole guitar. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, music is vast, mm. you know. And uh, so, I mean, I, you, it's a guitar you plug in, you mm-hmm. know, to be to be heard, to, to add, add to the music, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, anybody who plays music is doing the same job that I'm doing. We all have the same job. So we're going to move outside with the Free Mexican Air Force in tow. When did you meet those guys? Well, the bajo sexto player, the leader of the band, Max Baca, Mm -hmm. is from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Mm -hmm. I used to play in New Mexico a lot with Flaco Jimenez Mm -hmm. up in... uh, Powake at the Powake Indian Reservation. Wow, there's a there was a little b- bar there called the Line Camp, mm-hmm. and uh, we were playing there. And Flaco had heard about this young, twelve year old, bajo sexto mm-hmm. whiz, genius player, and so he brought. Uh, actually, uh, Max's parents brought him up to one of our shows, and being New Mexico, kids were allowed into bars and. Whatever it wasn't a big deal at that time. Yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, and uh, so Max got up and played with us, and mm. he became us. Uh, ten years later, he finished school and everything. He became a member of uh, the Texas Tornadoes mm-hmm. because he took the place of Oscar Tellez, mm-hmm. who was the bajo sexo player that played with Flaco and I on the road in England and everything. Mm-hmm. So Max became a member of, you know, uh, Doug Somm and Flacco's Freddy Fender, Texas Tornadoes. Mm-hmm. And then when the Tornadoes weren't touring, Flacco would tour, and Max was Flacco's bajo sexto player. Okay. And so, in fact, they see him all the time in Texas, too. Mm-hmm. They do special nights. And Flacco's still, I mean, he's 80 years old. Mm. and But he'll go out and he'll do a, a part of an evening mm-hmm. In many places, and in Texas, it's not like, uh, you know, oh, you got to keep your name, keep your name for only special occasions, you know, where you, your commercial value. Mm-hmm. T- for a guy like Flacco, he's he's just Flacco's everywhere. He's mm-hmm. he's 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 venerated mm-hmm. as as the father uh, of this kind of Tex-Mex thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a few Tex-Mex bands around. Not many. There's one in Japan, mm-hmm. but. The, one of the things we're looking at is like, would this be now in the realm of an expanded country music format? Mm-hmm. Because there's no, 
there's no market anymore for what they call te- Tejano music. Mm. Tejano music has now become uh, synthesizers and mm. stuff. However, I've got to say that there's a whole subculture of young, you know, 8 to 12 to 16-year-old kids that are learning the old-style accordion mm. and the old-style instruments. And, you know, the group like Los Lobos, mm. close at hand, collaborating it it's very it's very helpful so i'm thinking you know you know there's some way we can move forward with this it feels like it has momentum already and we this is our first gig as a band all right well let's find the free mexican air force yeah in the parking lot all right what's this song called this is la fuerza fria mexicana the free mexican air force is flying tonight Mescalito 
everybody flying so there you have it, Mr. Peter Rowan, walking history. Man, I could have talked to that guy for like 10 more hours. Uh, you can go to peter-rowan.com for his music and his tour dates. Uh, his newest release is called Carter Stanley's Eyes that he put out on his own Rebel Records. And if you go to bluegrasssituation.com, there's a really cool song premiere where you can hear the song and listen to uh, how he was inspired by the Stanley Brothers and their music from back in the day. It's really cool also to see how global uh, American folk music has become. And there's a really cool uh, festival that I just heard about, uh, the Kauai Folk Fest, which is in Hawaii, obviously. And uh, Peter will be playing uh, some of his favorite traditional Hawaiian music there in September. And that uh, record he put out, My Aloha, man, put that on at a dinner party, everyone's going to be smiling and feeling real good. And like I said, uh, I've been taking some really cool video of some of these last uh, episodes. The Warren Treaty last week, there was a beautiful video of them singing. And uh, Peter Rowan in the parking lot with Los Tex Maniacs backing him up. Uh, check that out in our Instagram, uh, Show on the Road podcast. And uh, as always, tell your friends about us, leave us a review, and we have some really fun episodes coming up. I'll be heading out for our first uh, summer run with Dust Bowl Revival, starting at the Roxy and Theater in Pittsburgh, June 14th, uh, and going all the way through Massachusetts and Connecticut and upstate New York and ending uh, in Ohio and Kentucky. We're playing our first show ever in Louisville at Headliners Music Hall on the 28th of June, and then ending at Rompfest on the 29th in Owensboro. And we have a couple really cool free shows, all ages uh, shows, which are in Denver at the Levitt Pavilion, July 6th, and at the Art Town Concert Series, Monday, July 8th in Reno, Nevada. So we'll see you out there. Did you know that the Bluegrass Situation has a whole podcast network? Uh, not just this show, uh, there's actually an amazing array of different things you can listen to, including The Shift List, which is hosted by the editor of this show, Mr. Chris Jacobs. Uh, he talks to chefs about their musical inspirations. Uh, it'll make you hungry, so just a warning there. There's also The String, uh, which Craig Havenhurst talks to amazing bluegrass luminaries like Ricky Skaggs and Annie Statman. And finally, there's The Breakdown with Emma John and Patrick McGonigal, which dives in deep to uh, take a part their favorite records and tell you what they're all about, such as Bela Fleck's Drive and uh, Antifogmatic by the Punch Brothers and a John Hartford favorite, so check that out. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail. <laughs>